0: Hello, thank you for visiting the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, feel free to visit our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And now here is this week's message brought to you by Senior Pastor Adam Russell. All right, happy Sunday. Welcome to the Vineyard. Good to be with you. Man, wasn't worship good? Goodness gracious, that was ridiculously good. And it's all the newbies. Did you notice? That was all that was all newbies. Love that here at the vineyard. That is so good. Made me happy. Alright, hey. Wanna do the beginning of two messages. One today, one next week. We're gonna be looking at the book of Amos book of Amos, said would be Old Testament. Today's message is called, What Is God So Mad About? I tried a hundred other titles and I couldn't come up with anything that was better than What Is God So Mad About? We're going to read two chapters from the book of Amos this morning. We're going to read the first and the second chapter. This is about as long a reading as we've ever had here at the Vineyard. But before we do that, I want to set it up like this. I want to remind you that Amos is speaking out of that great Bible tradition that is very much in line with what we've talked about the last two weeks when we've been looking at the book of Exodus. Amos is in every way a text that is written from the bottom. It is not a text that is written from the top. It is a text written from the bottom, uh, meaning those who are not in power. It is written from uh, the perspective of someone who does not necessarily have control. But he is speaking to the powers on behalf of other people who are even more disenfranchised than he is. So, it is that Bible tradition of speaking from the bottom to the top. Now, uh, Amos was a farmer. Amos was a farmer, he was a shepherd of Tekoa, and one of the really things um, that's amazing about um, Amos is that he is a farmer, but he ends up speaking to nations and national leaders, which is pretty amazing. How many farmers do you know who speak to nations and national leaders? Yeah, probably not many. This morning, during first service, we were able to think of two. Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter. And our very own, a true Kentucky Kentuckian, Wendell Berry. If you haven't read Wendell Berry, you absolutely need to. I think Wendell Berry is the modern analog to Amos, the shepherd of Tekoa. Speaking from the bottom to the top. It's interesting, the passage that we're going to read this morning is interesting, not only that the Spirit inspired it and that it was written down and preserved for us, but it's also very interesting and it's noteworthy the direction in which the message is going. And We've already highlighted part of it. It is from the low places to the high places, but it is also a message from the country to the city. And it is a message from the nobodies to the world rulers. Which is instructive because, again, it again upsets our notions of where power resides and where the voice of God is speaking. A lot of times we think, well, you know, the voice of God is located in the houses of power. So the voice of God must mostly be speaking in Washington or New York City or or, or maybe London or maybe Los Angeles. And the truth is that's not entirely the case in fact one of the things we see over and over again in the scripture is that god seems to be speaking from the margins and the edges back into the seats of power so this is this is interesting it's also noteworthy so here's what i want to do this morning i want to read two chapters and then we're going to unpack it a little bit and i'll tell you before we read this you probably need to brace yourselves it's unrelenting. It goes like this. This is Amos chapter 1. This is the message that was given to Amos, a shepherd from the town of Tekoa in Judah. He received this message in visions two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam II, the son of Joash, was king of Israel. This is what he saw and what he heard. The Lord's voice will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The lush pastures of the shepherds will dry up and the grass on Mount Carmel will wither and die. This is what the Lord says. The people of Damascus have sinned again and again and I will not let them go unpunished. They beat, me, they beat down my people in Gilead as grain is threshed with iron sledges. So I will send down fire on King Hazael's palace and the fortress of King Benadad will be destroyed. I will break down the gates of Damascus and I will slaughter the people in the valley of Avon. I will destroy the ruler of Beth Eden and the people of Aram will go... Of as captives to cur, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. The people of Gaza have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. They sent whole villages into exile, selling them as slaves to Edom. So I will send down fire on the walls of Gaza, and all its fortresses will be destroyed. I will slaughter the people of Ashad and destroy the king of Ashkelon. Then I will return to attack Ekron, and the few Philistines still left will be killed, says the Sovereign Lord. This is what the Lord says. The people of Tyre have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. They broke their treaty of brotherhood with Israel, selling whole villages as slaves to Edom. So I will send down fire on the walls of Tyre, and all of its fortresses will be destroyed. This is what the Lord says. The people of Edom has sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. They chased down their relatives, the Israelites, with swords, showing them no mercy. In their rage, they slashed them continually, and they were unrelenting in their anger. So I will send down fire on Taman, and, and the fortresses of Basra will be destroyed. This is what the Lord says. The people of Ammon have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. When they attacked Gilead to extend their borders, they ripped open pregnant women with their swords. So I will send down fire on the walls of Rabbah, and its fortresses will be destroyed. The battle will come upon them with shouts like a whirlwind in a mighty storm, and their king and his princes will go into exile together, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. The people of Moab have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. They desecrated the bones of Edom's king, burning them to ashes. So I will send down fire on the land of Moab, and all the fortresses in Kirioth will be destroyed. The people will fall in the noise of battle as the warriors shout and the ram's horn sounds. And I will destroy their king and slaughter their princes, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. The people of Judah have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. They have rejected the instruction of the Lord, refusing to obey his decrees. They have been led astray by the same lies that deceived their ancestors, so I will send down fire on Judah, and all the fortresses of Jerusalem will be destroyed. This is what the Lord says. The people of Israel have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. They sell honorable people for silver and poor people for a pair of sandals. They trample helpless people in the dust, and they shove oppressed out of the way. Both father and son sleep with the same woman, corrupting my holy name. And their religious festivals, they lounge in clothing, their debtors put up as security. In the house of their gods, they drink wine bought with unjust fines. But as my people watched, I destroyed the Amorites. Though they were as tall as cedars and as strong as oaks, I destroyed the fruit on their branches, and I dug out their roots, It was I who rescued you from Egypt and led you through the desert for 40 years so you could possess the land of the Amorites. I chose some of your sons to be prophets and others to be Nazarites. Can you deny this, my people Israel? Asks the Lord. But because you caused the Nazarites to sin by making them drink wine and you commanded the prophets to shut up, so I will make you groan like a wagon loaded down with sheaves of grain. Your fasters... Fastest runners will not get a ring away. The strongest among you will become weak. Even mighty warriors will be unable to save themselves. The archers will not stand their ground. The swiftest runners won't be fast enough to escape. Even those riding on horses won't be able to save themselves. On that day, the most courageous of your fighting men will drop their weapons and run for their lives, says the Lord. Feeling encouraged. (laughs) Feeling good. Feeling good. Well, here's the first question we have to ask ourselves about a passage like this. It's really basic. How do you read a passage like this? How do you read a passage like this? Is it just unrelenting brutality? Like, is it just the the, the uncontained wrath of God? Is that what it really is? Well, here's the first thing I want to say. Sometimes we're tempted to take passages like this one, or even books like Amos, and do this kind of math. We do the math that says, well, you know, this is just Old Testament stuff. This is just Old Testament, and and now we live under grace. So let's just keep reading 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and pretend this doesn't exist. Right? Love is patient. Love is kind. Somebody help me. And on the surface, I'd totally agree, right? It's a brutal passage. One judgment right after another. But here's the thing. If it's God's judgment, then there has to be some goodness in it somewhere. Even if it hits my ears with an edge, even if after a verse or two I become disinterested, one of the things that I've learned in my own life In terms of reading the Bible and being a disciple of Jesus is this. It's it's that the passage that I'm most tempted to disregard or look past is usually the passage that I need the most. I think that's the case with these passages. The truth is this. These passages are speaking to our times that we're living in right now. I I can't think of a book in the Bible right now that is more pertinent to the world condition than the book of Amos. And hopefully we'll see that before today's over. So we have to ask ourselves, well, what is God so mad about? It's a good place to start. But I think there's another question that sits right underneath that that we probably have to deal with before that. And it's the question of, what do we do with God and his anger? What do we do with God and his anger? And, And here's why we have to deal with this idea first. We have to deal with this first because we've grown really accustomed to drawing a very basic line between God and love. And by the way, that's a good thing. I mean, the Bible does, after all, declare it boldly. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. And one of the things that happens is this, is when we read these kinds of passages... We have to realize that 1 John 4.8 is speaking out of that long Judeo-Christian notion that God is love. But we also have to realize that Amos is actually speaking into and speaking out of that very same tradition. In fact, John the Apostle, John the Elder, would never have been able to write 1 John 4.8 were it not for the fact that Amos prophesied His message so many years ago. It's the same stream. So when we read these kinds of passages, we have to realize they're somehow containing the same tradition. The trouble is is this for you and I. The trouble is that we assume we really know what love is. That's the trouble. We assume we know what love is. Can I tell you something? The truth is you and I barely know what God's love is or what God's anger is. Even those of us who have been profoundly touched by God's love, the truth is, we've drank yet only a thimble of an endless ocean. And the truth is, for all that we do know, there is much more that we do not know. There's an aspect of God which will never be known. A lot of times in Christian circles, we talk about knowing God. I actually think that's a helpful discussion. But it's only helpful in so much as we also talk about the God who is also unknowable. A God that I can completely contain and can know is no God at all. It's a figment of my own imagination. There's an aspect of who God is that will never be known, not even in eternity. There's an aspect of who God is that will never be known, not even in eternity. Therefore, there's an aspect of his love, and therefore there might be an aspect of his anger, which is beyond our natural uh, inclinations and and our reflexes of what we think we know about love and anger. It's good to let go of some of what we think we know. We know a little bit about man's love and we know a little bit about man's anger, but divine love is another thing altogether. Here's another little secret. I don't ever want to become an expert in love. I want to qualify that just for a moment. I don't ever want to become an expert in love in this sense. In the sense that I think I know all that there is to know about love. Or the sense that I begin to assume that my working definition of love is the one that God is operating within. I never want to become an expert in that way. I never want to become an expert in that way. At the end of the day, the theologians are right. God must remain free. There are some things I can absolutely tell you about God's love. And at the same time, I never want to become an expert. I never want to assume that God is working off of my definitions. I always want to stay a novice in the sense that God is God. He is free and I am here and I am only his humble servant trying to see, trying to know all that he will show me. Because here's the thing. When we begin to build up definitions, or we begin to hold God accountable to our own understanding, the the natural reaction to that is that we build definitions and images of love that are walls rather than bridges. And the Holy Spirit is almost never building walls, He's always building bridges. He's never keeping people out, He's always reaching out. So then we have to ask this question. Can a loving God get angry? Can a loving God get angry? Yes, a loving God can get angry. And it seems to me that if it's real love, at times real love necessitates real anger. Here's why. Here's why. Love is not cool, emotionless detachment. God is not an intelligent gas that is floating in the ether. So here's the thing, church, God did not just create the world, he is in the world. And he is not just in the world, it is another level altogether. Do you remember when Paul says this, "In him we move, we live and move and what?" Have our being? This is pointing to another another idea of who God is altogether. God is not simply the one who has life, God is the reality of life itself. God is not the fountain of existence. God is existence. Which means that we can no longer separate God out of any place or any moment. This doesn't make him responsible for evil, but what it does mean is this, that God is pervasive in the system. You could never run away from God even if you wanted to. Nothing that has ever happened has been divorced from God. God has been in it. It may not have come from him, but he has been in it. He has experientially knows it. He knows it not from the outside. He knows it not from his omniscience, but he knows it from the inside and in his person. This is the story of Jesus, that God has come down and he knows the joy and he knows is the pain of life God is not simply existence in terms of he gave existence he is life he is existence and so we can never divorce him out of it In any way. So what does this have to do with anger? Well, this is what it has to do with anger. If God is in the world, if he is life itself, if he is somehow present to all the good, the bad, the blessing and the cursing, the living, the dying, if he is not only aware, but he is present in and experiencing all the pain and the futility and the trauma and the evil that is in the world, especially all of the trauma that is damaging to the life that he gives, especially to the life that he gives to the ones that he loves, then how could anger not be a part of the equation? Let me say it like this. If God is a good father, then how should he feel if someone were hurting some of his kids? Furthermore, how should he feel if some of the people doing the worst were his very own kids? If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. Get multiple kids running around the house. Most of the time they do pretty good. Occasionally they get stupid, right? And then somebody hurts someone. Either on accident or occasionally on purpose. And when they hurt one another on purpose, there's this thing that happens, right? Even if it's your own kids, right? And that's not a sign of our weakness. In fact, I would argue that's a sign of the image that has been placed upon us. How does God feel when someone treats his kids Poorly. So in this way, God's anger and his judgment, rather than being repugnant, they're a kind of comfort because this is what it means. It means that God knows and that God sees and he cares and he's actively working against the expansion of human suffering. That's what it means. And we need to reflect on that just for a moment. So what is God so mad about? Remember this long passage we read this morning? What is God so mad about? It's in every single section without a break. What is God so mad about? He's mad about human suffering. And here's specifically what he's mad about. He's mad about people who hurt other people and take advantage of them. And let me just say this right up front. This is not an Old Testament thing. This is just an all-time thing. When some people go out and take advantage of other people, one thing you can know. You might get away with it for a while, but God in heaven sees and he knows and it makes them angry. And here's why, because he is a good father. That is why. That is why. And and it is connected and it is rooted deeply in the fact that God is love. God is not a limp-wristed, weak-willed, look-the-other-way God. When God's kids begin to hurt some of God's other kids, he doesn't look away and pretend it doesn't happen. So let's reflect on this. What is he mad about? Judgment is coming because people are treating other people poorly. And I hope you notice that over and over again, it was the practice of enslavement, violence, and disbursement. These things sear God in a really unique way. Now let's set aside what he's doing about it for a minute. And let's um, let's just talk about the fact that Amos is an equal opportunity prophet of judgment. Amos begins his prophecies in a way that is completely unsurprising. Amos was from Judah. That would be the southern kingdom. That's where Jerusalem is. And he begins his prophecies in chapter 1 going on into chapter 2. And he names names. And he names names like this. Damascus and Gaza, Tyre, Edom ammon and moab those are all the classic enemies of israel but he doesn't stop there and that's the reason this is so darn surprising and it's one of the ways that we know that god's spirit is actually in it he doesn't just stop with his enemies but he actually begins to become critical of jerusalem judah and israel itself that's the really surprising part it's kind of like this it's kind of like the true prophetic ministry and i I can't say this emphatically enough it's kind of like this. True prophetic ministry isn't just concerned with what's happening to us. It's actually much more concerned with what's coming through us. Sometimes, sometimes we assume that the prophetic is just to explain to us what's happening to us and to curse all of our enemies. That's actually low-level kindergarten uh, prophetic ministry. Real prophetic ministry is always much more concerned with what's coming out of us than what's coming to us. Here's why. It's it's always easier to see where other people have faults. Isn't that what Jesus said? Hey, don't talk about your brother's speck in his eye. Why don't you go ahead and take the log out of your own eye, right? It's harder to see our own faults, and it's even more difficult still to speak them, especially when everything seems to be going so well. And by the way, this wasn't a particularly low time in Israel's history. Things were going pretty well. But the prophetic voice always speaks... that which is happening behind the thing that is happening. Let's just talk about prophetic ministry here for a moment. If you've been at the vineyard for any time, you know that we endeavor to be prophetic people and we endeavor to be prophetic people out of a working definition that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 3. The one who prophesies speaks to men for their edification, exhortation and comfort. And by the way, that is good news and we want more of it. That is because when we get together, there's a certain way that we should talk to one another. Edification, exhortation, and comfort. That is a good thing. That is how you keep good church meetings Good church meetings. But it's not the only tradition within the prophetic movement. Historically, in the scripture and in culture, God has been raising up prophets which also speak something else. And the other thing they speak is they speak and they call out for justice. Wherever there are people that are being abused and wherever there are people who are being stolen from or killed or taken advantage of, the prophetic voice steps in and doesn't speak a word of, you're going to get blessed. It speaks a word of, you have to stop. This is not okay. And it's interesting to me that in the, that the prophets in the Bible mostly said to the powerful people, you can't treat people this way. And for that reason, they were killed. But the prophets in the charismatic church mostly say, you're great and your blessing is coming around the corner. I think that's a really big problem. One of the things you'll never hear the prophets in the charismatic church say, you'll never hear them speak to power. Almost never. I should say never. You'll almost never hear them say, that, that the way that the poor, the least, and the lost in America and around the world are being treated is not okay. You will almost always hear them say, to the pastor first, and then to the pastor's sons and daughters, you're great and God has a plan for your life. And that is always true, but to say the one without the other negates the first. This is a big problem in our tribe. This is a big problem in our tribe. Those are things that make me go, hmm... See, there's a reason that Martin Luther King Jr. loved the book of Amos and often quoted it. He said over and over again in many speeches, let justice roll like a mighty river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. And guess what happened to him? He got shot. Some of us are thinking, okay, Martin Luther King Jr., it's all history. But maybe it's not. I think it's not. And I'm just going to read a few numbers here to you and then we'll eventually get so bored with these, we have to stop. But we have to see this just a little bit. Because the thing that Martin Luther King Jr. was speaking to and the thing that Amos was speaking to and the thing that real prophets from Amos to Martin Luther King Jr. and untold others who, who history has forgotten or written out of history, the thing that is consistent is actually among us right now. I want to say it like this. From 1980 to 2008 the number of people incarcerated in America has quadrupled from 500,000 to 2.3 million. Today in the US 5% today the US is 5% of the world's population but it has 25% of the world's prisoners. If you combine the number of people in prison and in jail with those under parole or probation sur- supervision one in every 31 adults or 3.2% of the population is under some form of correctional control. Okay, we just assume they're all bad people, right? Here's the problem. There's a huge racial disparity when it comes to incarceration. African-Americans now constitute nearly 1 million of the total 2.3 million incarcerated. African-Americans are incarcerated at nearly six times the rate of whites, Together, African-Americans and Hispanics compromised 58% of all prisoners in 2008, even though African-Americans and Hispanics make up approximately one quarter of the U.S. population. Does that math seem off to you? Something's wrong, right? This is interesting. According to Unlocking America, if African-American and Hispanics were incarcerated at the same rate as white people, today's prison and jail populations would decline by half. One in six black men has been incarcerated as of 2001. If trends continue, one in three during our lifetime. There's a major disparity between races when it comes to drug sentencing. About 14 million whites and 2.6 million African Americans report using illicit drugs. Yet or let me say it this way, five times as many whites are using drugs as African Americans, yet African Americans are sent to prison for drug offenses at ten times the rate of whites. African Americans represent 12% of the total population of drug users, but 38% of those who are arrested for drug offenses, and 59% of those who are in state prison for drug offense. This is bad. African Americans serve virtually the same amount of time in prison for a drug offense, 58.7 58.7 months, as whites do, for violent crime, which is 61.7 months. See, something's going on. This is, this is just real basic injustice. This is really basic injustice. And there's all kinds of contributing factors. There's all kinds of effects of long-term incarceration that lead to more incarceration I'm not saying that these issues are simple. In fact, I'm saying quite the opposite. They're not simple. They're, they're complicated. And anybody who says they have a simple solution to a complicated problem doesn't understand the problem. These are, these are long-term things. But we need, probably need to talk about economy for a second as well. This is pretty unbelievable. The average American believes, this is just what we believe, the average American believes that the richest fifth own 59% of the wealth and the bottom 40 own 9%. However, the reality is that the top 20% of U.S. households own more than 84% of the wealth, and the bottom 40% combined for 0.3%. The Walton family alone, that's Walmart, the Walmart family. The Walton family alone, for example, has more wealth than 42% of American families combined. Here's the trouble. The trouble with that is that right now there is a thing, and this is not just in the American economy, this is the world economy. Economic status is becoming calcified, meaning whatever level you're born into is probably the best you can do. And if there is any mobility, it's probably not going to be upward mobility, it's going to be downward mobility because fewer and fewer people are owning more and more of the wealth so they're controlling how that wealth gets dispersed and where it goes so here's what it means it means that the idea of the American dream that if you work really hard and you're really smart and you put your nose to the grindstone that eventually you'll break through and you'll do better than your parents uh, the chances of that happening are decreasing by the year in America and rather what's going on is most people are doing worse they're beginning to live at a place worse than their parents there's some kind of economic injustice here uh, it, the truth is in america right now if you're smart and if you work hard you might not do better than your mom and dad you might but you might not uh, not only that but but if you are an african-american you're going to have to work two to three times harder than your white counterpart because the truth is you are born so far behind the eight ball and most of us don't see it and this is the stuff that makes god angry this is an unjust situation. Uh, furthermore, slavery still exists in the world. The practice continues in all kinds of forms in every single country around the world. Women are forced into prostitution, children and adults forced forced to walk, work in ag- agriculture and domestic work. Uh, in fact, one of the things that happens right now, we wouldn't, we wouldn't recognize it as slavery, but it's, it's so current, and it's actually here in Taylor County in central Kentucky. It, it, it's this. It is... Illegal immigrants are brought over into the United States, and in order to be brought over, they incur a debt. The debt could be any number. And then they're forced to work on a farm to work off their debt, which, which is basically forced, occupied, indentured servitude. And some of these people work for a decade to get their freedom. Well, what happens if you come here and you have to work for five, ten years to get freedom from that initial debt? Then, after ten years, you're completely worn out. Your knees don't work anymore, and you have nothing to show for it other than your freedom. where's, Where's the mobility there? See, our economy is working on forces that are, in fact, keeping some people pressed down. This is not this is not rare either. This is common. This is really, really common. And and some of us have all kinds of political ideas as to what it means. And and we have certain assumptions about where certain populations should be or shouldn't be. And I just want to tell you that for me personally, anytime I meet a, a Hispanic person or somebody from South America who has been brave enough to come here and to work illegally, I actually applaud them because what I understand is that there was something at home that was so bad that they thought the bad deal that they were going to get in America must be better. And anybody who's that courageous, I give them my hand right here. Not only that, but I worked with those people for seven years in the landscape industry. I had illegal immigrants who worked with me in two different companies, and every single one of those dudes were not a bad person. They were grinding their face off, sending three-quarters or two-thirds of their money back home to mamas and family members who were starving someplace else. This is part of the injustice that's woven into the system and is not okay. It's just not okay. So we have to wake up to these realities. These are just some of the realities. For instance, one of the things that we need to ask ourselves is this. Where did this come from? And by the way, I love this. I love this little guy right here. Larry, I do. I love it. But we have to ask ourselves, where did this come from? And have you ever noticed the magic writing that's on the back? Anybody ever read it? Right underneath, iPhone, it's the super fine print. If you have glasses, you might have to wear them. First words, designed by Apple in California. What's the implication? Not made in America. Well, then where where was it made from? Yeah. See, and here's the thing. About 18, months ago, was, about 18 months ago, there were some factories in China where they were making these. And they had a wave of suicides in the factory in China where they were making these. And the reason that people were killing themselves is because the working conditions to make this were so bad. Have things gotten better? I, literally, I don't know, right? I don't know. But I just know that there are things that are happening. And this isn't so that we all feel guilty. Like, guilt doesn't work. You can be happy, but we can't be blind. We can be happy, but we cannot be blind. So then we have to ask ourselves, well, what is God doing? What is God doing about this? Or how does judgment work? Is judgment even real? I want to tell you right now, I do believe in judgment. I also want to say this. This next section here is way above my pay grade, but I'm going to speak about it anyway. And I'm also going to say this. You can totally disagree with this next section. Totally cool. This is not dogma. This doesn't keep anybody saved and it doesn't send anybody to hell. If you have a different view of how judgment works, God bless you. This is just the way I've seen it work and I think this is the way that it kind of happens in our universe. It seems to me, anyway, it seems to me that, number one, judgment is real and you can count on it. But here's here's the thing. It seems to me that judgment is seamlessly interwoven into the fabric of the universe. You cannot escape it. So rather than a God who is more or less making infinite personal decisions about who gets busted and who gets busted when... It is more like God has designed life to be lived in a certain way. And because of that, life has a given direction. Life has flow. You might say that the universe has grain. Anybody here ever seen an oak board? Most of us have. If you look at an oak board, one of the things that is so apparent to you about that oak board is that it has grain. And the grain is obvious. And if you run your hand across that oak board with the grain... It is quite smooth and you have no problems. But if for the sake of novelty you decide that you're going to wear on your hand against the grain and that oak board, there's a really good chance maybe not the first time but certainly the second, third, fourth or tenth time you will get a splinter in your hand. That is judgment. This is, in my opinion, the way that most judgment works. I say most because at the end of the day God does get to be God and he does get to be free. But the But the universe has a grain to it, and if you work against the way that God has set things up, we get splinters. So here's the thing. If you don't study for a test, you fail, and it wasn't God's fault. If we act violently against other people, guess what? We will reap violence and destruction. One of the reasons our world is so filled with violence and destruction is because we really believe that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is the way this thing should run, and it doesn't work. We just all end up blind and toothless. A culture of lying, a culture of lying begets only more lies, and a culture of stealing and thievery reaps even more theft. Let's do a little thought project here. Let's, let's, just, uh, let's just say that you and I decided to become white-collar criminals. That we decided to steal money from our jobs. White-collar crime. What happens if you steal money from your job? You embezzle. Well, here's what you have to do. First thing you have to do is you have to fix the books. Not only that, but you have to live with a lie. Every day. And you have to tell more lies. Every day. And then you have to continue to make small adjustments to the books. Corporate profits become artificially lower. There'll be some kind of a contraction. People will probably lose their jobs. Which means that you're probably going to lose some talented people. And if the company suddenly has less talented people on board... That only ex- exponentially causes the company to do even more poorly... And then at the end of that, the company might close. What do you call that? Judgment. That's what it is. That's how it works. This is why in a violent and an unjust time, we need peacemakers. Let me just say this right now. We need peacemakers. Okay. You know that whole Sermon on the Mount thing that Jesus did? It begins with the Beatitudes. And one of the Beatitudes uh, goes like this. Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called what? Sons of God. And here's the thing, church. It's so interesting to me. Jesus does not say blessed are those who are intellectually agreeable to the concept of peace. Jesus does also also does not say blessed are those blessed are those who do not work against peace. Blessed are those who passively accept peace. He doesn't say any of that. He actually says blessed are peacemakers. Blessed are the ones who are giving their lives to go and work against violent and oppressive movements that are in our world. Blessed are those who go and find places where shalom does not exist and bring the shalom of God. And by the way, shalom is not just lack of chaos. Shalom is the total well-being it is everything in its right place and everyone contented. Anything that is not contented and in its right place, blessed are those who go and do the hard work of confronting what the issue is and give their own lives to bring shalom. That's what it is. That's what it means. And if you do that, you'll be called a son of God. You, you might get killed, but you will be called a son of God. See, here's the thing. A lot of times we think this whole Sermon on the Mount thing is just mamby-pamby, you know, stained glass, rosy cheek Jesus, and it's just the weak way out. But one of the things that I've become more and more convinced of is that everything that Jesus says is the most dangerous and it's the most difficult. And if you really do it, even 1%, it's the most radical, crazy thing a person could do. You know what? If we're just intellectually agreeable to the concept of peace, that will cost you nothing. If you become a peacemaker, it might take your life. But here's the thing in a violent time, in a time when people are being systemically oppressed, in a time when 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 there is a real difference for what it means if you are a white person or if you are a black person in a time like this, the world needs peacemakers, not people who are intellectually agreeable to the concept of peace. We need peacemakers. We need real prophetic voices. We need to we need to see and we need to hear. Here's the thing church we need to listen for, for prophetic voices because this is how God always begins to to address unjust situations. He always begins by saying it and he says it through prophetic voices. And by the way, I just want you to know this, true prophetic voices are always hard to hear. They're always hard to hear because they come on the on the outside, they come on the outside of our of our existence. They're usually not in the center. True prophetic voices usually have a Couple steps outside of the center, they're usually on the edge. They're either on the edge of our politics, they're on the edge of our race, they're on the edge of our socioeconomic upbringing. They're always out here on the edge. They're always out here on the edge. And if and if you think if you and if you if you're unsure of this, then just just ask somebody who lived through the civil rights movement. I've been talking to some people who who grew up when those when those were their formational years. And and if you get somebody who's really honest, they'll tell you that the first time they heard Martin Luther King Jr., there was something in their heart that resonated. This is true. And at the same time, it was really hard to hear, especially in the South. It was really hard to hear. So if we want to hear prophetic voices, we have to like even begin like by now by saying in our own hearts, I am going to somehow listen. And I'm probably going to be listening to somebody who's much different than me. See, here's the thing, church. This is on God's heart. I'm just becoming more and more convinced that this is on God's heart. God is not for America being great and every other country being our servant. God is not for the United States being rich while the rest of the poor lives in squalor. God is not for us being prosperous while everyone around us suffers. Those narratives, those narratives they actually they, they come from the evil one the, the narrative that says that whatever we whatever we have to do to be the greatest nation, whatever we have to do to be the richest is okay it's actually not true and it doesn't come from God. so what do we do? what do we do real quickly number one, we listen for prophetic voices they're, they're actually in our culture right now they're in our culture they're beginning to they're beginning to come up and I think we're going to I think in the next generation we're going to have a transformational prophetic voice come out and 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 it's going to come from the edges somewhere but like here's the deal we're due for another martin luther king jr we're due it's like it's like the world it's like across the united states and in the world we're due for another transformational prophetic voice it at the first it will be hard to hear but we have to listen for start listening for prophetic voices because they're probably going to speak outside of our circle uh, the second thing we have to do is we have to ask God to wake us up to issues of injustice. We have to, we actually have to wake up, because here's what privilege does. It lulls you to sleep. Privilege will put you to sleep. Global issues of injustice, but then especially local issues of injustice. Like, here's the thing, uh, Taylor County. Why is everyone in Taylor County on drugs? I realize I just spoke super generally there, but you know what I'm talking about. Why is it that everywhere I go, I meet people who are pilled out of their brains? Why? That's a good question. Why? Uh, here's another question for our region. Why is it that most people who live in Taylor County actually live at or below the poverty level? It's, it, this is a really big deal. Why? And, and I know the, the simple answer is, we need better jobs. Well, hang, wait just a second. Wait. Like, that's, like, that's like the simple thing that actually doesn't help. There's something else underneath it. What is that? What is that? So we have to ask God to wake us up to issues of injustice. We have to ask, uh, we have to ask God again, just like we did last week. Where are we being tempted to throw the babies in the Nile? Number three, we have to determine to be peacemakers. Not just peacekeepers, but peacemakers. Not just people who are cool with peace, but peacemakers. I think this isn't actually a big invitation from God right now to his church. Church, can you be peacemakers? You know what? Here's what I think. I think between first and second service, we probably have one or two people here who are called to be peacemakers in a real big way. But I also think that all of us are called to to small and practical ways to being peacemakers. Everybody here. I I think one of the things that God wants to do with this church is he wants to make us a peacemaking church. Like we work for peace. And then, and then finally, I think we have to ask God to make us a prophetic community, a prophetic community without trying to be prophets either. Don't any of us go out and try to be a prophet. That's foolish. No one gets to decide they're a prophet. That's up to God. But one of the things we can decide is we can decide to be a prophetic community. And how do we do that? Well, we need to speak encouragement to one another. But at the same time, when we see injustice in the world, we need to be a voice for the oppressed. We need to be a voice for the oppressed. We can't just be a voice for blessing while turning an eye to the people who actually need it the most. We can't do that. That actually robs us of the true prophetic spirit. The true prophetic spirit. And then we can speak and then we can act prophetically without trying to be big time prophets. Is that okay? What is God so mad about? I I think I think God is upset with people who are alive right now who are hurting and damaging other people for their own personal gain. And by the way, that's it's it's everywhere. And here's the deal, church. We're not going to fix this in the next six months, okay? But what we can do is we can we can begin to fix our own hearts, to wake up and to see. We can do like Moses. Moses spent 40 years living in Pharaoh's house. And then one day he woke up to his own privilege and saw his people hurting. We can wake up. I think this is the word for us. we got to wake up. This is like we got to wake up. We are so blessed. We are so blessed. This church, this, this country, this people, we are so ridiculously blessed. And, and the invitation of blessing, if you're, if you're a Christian, the invitation is to always see past our blessing, to not ever let blessing be anesthesia. Listen, I, I know in my own life, blessing has mostly been anesthesia, but God is waking us up. He's, he's getting us off the morphine drip. He's letting us see what it really is. Yeah, all right, I've stirred up enough. Chicago. Don't shout me down because I'm preaching good. <laughs> Apparently, I can't drink out of a cup either, or a <laughs> bottle. All right. Hey, why don't you guys stand up? If you're on the ministry team this morning, come on up. Here's what we're going to do we got some, oh man, ministry professionals this morning. <laughs> We got the heavy hitters this morning. These people know how to pray. Good. All right, so here's what we want to do. Uh, I'm going to pray for us generally. Then if you need to respond to this word or if you need just prayer in general, if you are sick in your body or if you're hurting, you're in this place of transition, you need somebody to stand with you, these people want to do that. We want to do that. But even before I pray, I want to say this. Church, it's totally legal and it is good and it is right to be happy. But you can't be blind. It's good and right to be joyful. This isn't about guilt. It's about waking up. Okay? Legal to be happy. Can't be blind. All right, God, we ask in the name of Jesus that you would give us the grace to be a peacemaking church. God, we ask that you would give us the grace to see past all the ways that we've just been invisibly blessed. God, all the things that, that, gosh, didn't come because we were smart. And didn't come because we were stronger and worked harder, but just because you were good and we ended up with something that we didn't even know about. God, we ask that you'd allow us to see past that. God, every place where there is systemic injustice in our city, in our state and in our country, God, we ask that you would, you'd wake us up to us. Uh, God, I ask also that you would anoint people in this room to be peacemakers. God, for those of us in this room who are called to bigger projects, to things that really, um, that really matter, God, we ask that you'd give us grace that we might be able to confront that. God, for those of us who are going to be called to be messengers, would you give us a message? Would you give us the words? Would you allow us to vocalize? Would you let us say it? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah yeah yeah. Yeah yeah yeah. And God we ask that your church not just this one but your big sea church all over the world. God that it would be it would be another kingdom. God that it would be your kingdom. It would be your kingdom. God we ask that your church would be known as the place where there is no Jew where there is no Greek that where there is no slave, no free, no male and no female that there is liberty in every single direction God would you let your church be known and would you let us have that spirit here God we ask this in your name we ask this in the name of Jesus who was a peacemaker and therefore the true son of God Amen, Amen hey if you need to respond to this message you come on up these people want to pray for you otherwise give somebody a high five and a hug Thank you again for stopping by the podcast at the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening here at the Vineyard, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Until next time, peace to you.